This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, the Hamilton, Sault Ste. Marie, and Windsor-Essex Chambers of Commerce uh, will be providing testimony at the House of Commons today in regards to a study on the Canadian steel industry and its ability to compete internationally. To join us and talk more about all of this, Husefa Saeed is with us, Policy and Research Analyst with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, and is with us now. Hello, Husefa. How are you today? I'm good today, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. I understand you're en route. Yes, I'm on a burial train, so uh, if you hear some uh, creaking and some cracking, uh, that's just a train vibrating at, on its way to Ottawa. All right, so tell everybody what you're doing and what, what the objective is here. Absolutely. So the uh, Committee on International Trade uh, for the House of Commons, uh, Government of Canada, it's uh, begun uh, a study um, on the ability of Canadian steel industry to be competitive internationally. Um, so as as, as We've talked uh, to Jim about before. Um, our chambers, in partnership um, unofficially with the other two chambers in Ontario, uh, who have steel industries, have been very active over the past year. Uh, first through a policy resolution at the Canadian Chamber, and then uh, through a dialogue with cabinet ministers and, and local MPs on um, a number of emerging um, trends and a number of emerging factors. Uh, that need to be addressed at, at the highest level uh, by the federal government. Um, that that entire campaign it was going on, and then um, with the election of uh, President Donald Trump, uh, is a, a very severe urgency uh, to Canada taking stock of what they have, what the challenges are, what their businesses are feeling, both at, at the large level as well as the small and medium businesses, um, and then having a clear agenda on how they're going to approach uh, this in, in terms of its dealings with China, which are coming up, in September, with the uh, potential free trade agreement that uh, the prime, uh, prime minister is interested in, as well as uh, President Trump saying that he wants to open up uh, the NAFTA agreement, uh, which has directly affected steel in, in good and bad ways um, later this year as well. So uh, this is just a chance for the committee to uh, gain some testimony uh, from local communities and, and, and get, get a grasp of what they're dealing with. So, uh, in your in your mind, where is the health of the Canadian steel industry right now? I think, um, from our perspective, as well as the perspective of the, uh, uh, the unions, as well as the Steel Producers Association, whom we've uh, worked with very closely, um, we're very concerned that the um, ongoing oversupply in the steel uh, market. So, right now, there's an approximate production of two and a half billion metric tons of steel. Uh, the world's demand is projected to be only around 1.6. So there's almost 1 billion uh, ton of excess steel. Um, over 60% of it is being produced uh, in China and Oceania, uh, India, Korea, Turkey, and then countries like that, uh, where it's, it's just gone on for the past uh, few decades. And, and we've seen the impacts of that within the Canadian context where uh, they're simply not able to compete with uh, a very complex web of state, state subsidies um, embargoes and, and, and other form of uh, what is considered illegal support um, in the international trade context. What I mean by that is um, under the global trading paradigm, uh, you know, in the free market, each country is supposed to create an even playing field for their businesses. So when they're uh, exporting and importing their products into a different country, um, they are then allowed to compete with the local product with the assumption that everything is on the same even playing field. But uh, with the complexity of the Chinese uh, government and, and, and their support and preferences for um, the steel industry and, and what, we're, what we're seeing now uh, with 
the Buy America policy that President Obama passed a few years ago, uh, which um, disallowed Canadian and foreign steel from being used in uh, federal infrastructure products, steel's being used in a very protectionist manner. Uh, so the Canadian market finds itself in an awkward spot where um, we do have world-class, you know, value-added steel products, uh, but by sheer quantity, we're not able to compete globally. So uh, how has Trump changed the game? What, what, what is the difference there, and, and how does this change the perspective? Sure. So before President Trump, under President Obama, and, and let's say all the American presidents for the past 20 years, uh, the global ter- trading paradigm was that there's a NAFTA agreement signed in the early 90s where Canada, U.S., Mexico are united fronts, and they work with the uh, European Union and then countries in Europe uh, to create this, this level playing field where everyone's going to free trade and benefit from each other. Um, and, and we're going to open our borders, and, 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 and that worked. But under President Trump, um, he is very supportive of local jobs, very supportive of certain local industries. We've heard a lot about coal. We've heard a lot about you know automakers, uh, but still certainly on his agenda as well. And he's said multiple times that he's very interested in uh, dealing with any form of uh, you know, uh, dumping any form of uh, trade violations, and he's going to protect the borders, he's going to protect the jobs, and he sees his success directly associated with the outcomes of these specific manufacturing differences. Whereas in the past, I think America was operating on a more of a free market economy style a system where if a steel industry um, is suffering, it's suffering because, you know, that's the drawback of being part of a global free market where, you know, maybe some other American industries are doing well because they have an advantage. Maybe they don't in um, the steel industry, and then there's some decline there. But that's okay because overall uh, we're we're in good good picture. But it, it doesn't really seem to work that way with President Trump, and you won't really see the tangible actions of it. Right now, it's just statements on Twitter and then through uh, press releases and the opinions of some of the cabinet choices. Uh, but with the NAFTA agreement scheduled to you know be uh, begun renegotiation in, in late 2017, um, I think that's when we will see the real impact on what they're actually planning on doing. And I think the other aspect of this is uh, the Canadian steel industry has, pr- uh, has prided itself on um, working over the, over the last few decades on, um, it used to be a smokestack industry, it still is, but it's not to the same extent. There's a lot of advanced manufacturing happening using robotics, using the clean electricity grid, using um, less, uh, you know, environmentally sensitive uh, uh, pollutants. And, and I think other countries like China and India, one of the concerns was that while they're able to supply Indian firms, um, they don't have the same environmental regulations. Our businesses are following right. and obliged to follow and choose to follow. Um, and and it, it was somewhat, as America was also, you know, somewhat neck and neck with, with Canada on, on this kind of sentiment. But the other, you know, Hussein, are you still there? Okay, we just cut out yeah. a little bit there. Let me ask you this, Hussein. Uh, you know, we were, you were talking about, uh, you know, how Donald Trump has changed this discussion. But it seems that, you know, if you ask anybody in the steel industry, they've been complaining about cheap steel or, or, or steel, you know, being flooded into our market from other sources such as China uh, for years. How has that been allowed to happen? And this was long before Trump. So, so, so there are, under their system, there are remedies where 
diesel and present their evidence and, and say that the uh, steel that was brought into the country uh, now needs to retroactively uh, be taxed to a high level or if the uh, offense is egregious and continuous, like perhaps there might be consideration of, of a ban. Um, while that's there in place, you know, in our briefing note, in our testimony today, we're going to talk about how there's still a lot of shortfalls in the turnaround time and in the amount of investment that's put into the investigation. Uh, but despite all of that, the, because it's state-sponsored, um, there's quite a few creative workarounds uh, that the Chinese uh, businesses are able to do so because it's a very complex web of how the corporations work there. And even the tribunal is usually unsuccessful in uncovering the full extent. Um, so these, these tribunal, you know, hearings and, and decisions, they're very public. They're on the website of the Canadian Border Services, um, but they haven't really stopped the tide. Like, you, can, you know, you can try to uh, plug a dam with, with, a, with a few rocks, but if the entire thing is just overspilling, then um, you're only catching a small amount of what's, what's really happening. Uh, as you said, uh, with with your analogy of the dam, what does government do? How much power do they have to rectify this? I think the argument would be that the governments do have that power to negotiate um, at the highest level. Like this is one of those things where it's prime minister, prime minister. Um, they announce um, that you know they are. Uh, and then, you know, their trust in, in the steel industry is going to dictate how, uh, you know, dialogue goes in terms of, you know, free trade uh, negotiations in the auto sector and the, uh, you know, natural resource sector, all the other discussions China might want to make. All of these things become out of the part of the ball game, and it's all about which levers do you wish to pull. Mm-hmm. I think outside of that, the other idea that we have is um, we're not suggesting that the government, you know, mandate that locally... Uh, produce steel be used in some of the infrastructure projects that um, are planned over $30 billion of them, like America is doing, uh, because, you know, that will lead to other ramifications. But what we're saying is that um, in in terms of how we design our trade remedy system, cleaning government in awarding this federal procurement uh, should consider the fact that are the workers, you know, following all health and safety regulations? um, Are they paying a carbon price? Are they what is the state of the electricity grid? Is it fired by coal? Is it fired by, uh, you know, other mm-hmm. uh, renewable sources that Canada is trying to move towards and, and taxing businesses to the carbon pricing regime? So, so we're asking for a more comprehensive set of criteria uh, before they award uh, these contracts because it hasn't been the case so far. Like our colleagues from Windsor would tell a story about how uh, the big, uh, you know, bridge project that they have in Detroit, like it's, it's some American steel, some Canadian steel, but if you look under the covers, there's also uh, some foreign steel in there that wasn't considered at the same level as uh, Canadian steel. So, so I think we're just asking for um, a more even playing field and, and not for you know protectionism and, and some of the other ideas that uh, other countries might have. Hussefa Saeed is with us, policy and research analysis with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Hamilton, along with Sault Ste. Marie and Windsor-Essex Chambers, uh, providing testimony at the House of Commons today in regards to a study on Canadian steel, uh, the industry, and how it uh, can cope internationally. Hussefa, thanks very much for the time and insight. Good luck.
Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As we continue to watch from afar, uh, more news coming out in regarding to traveling. Uh, Less to do with us, more to do with people coming from Middle Eastern countries and arriving in the United States. The U.S. government is ordering all passengers on nonstop flights uh, to the U.S. from a few Middle Eastern countries to check all electronics devices. They say that only cell phones and smartphones will be allowed in the passenger cabin. Anything larger than that, like a tablet or uh, a laptop, something like that, uh, are not allowed in the cabin area. To talk more about all of this, David Hyde is with us, security consultant, David Hyde and Associates, and is on the line now. Hello, David. How are you today? Very good, Scott. How are you doing? Good. So your thoughts on this, I guess my first question is, uh, well, no, let me hear your thoughts on all of this first. Well, um, there's been, uh, you know, recently, Scott, a little bit of chatter in the intelligence circles um, uh, in terms of just terror threats, we, you know, new U.S. president recently, um, you know, a lot of things happening on the, that would, you know, ISIS are being attacked, pinned back a little bit abroad. There's plans about, you know, a big move against ISIS, you know, in the workings right now. So for a number of reasons, the terrorist chatter has increased. And part of that chatter, uh, according to what we're seeing unfold here, is the fact that there may be some type of a plan, whether it's actually a plan that's already uh, roughed in to a degree or whether it's just being discussed, but to utilize different forms of electronics that's commonly found on, on flights, like a laptop, like a tablet, a gaming device, or maybe a, a, a digital um, um, camera that, you know, is a little bit bigger. It certainly could have some explosives in that would do damage. And it's a little bit difficult to screen sometimes. I mean, obviously, they, you know, we do see them screened at airports, but when you look at you know, if there was a little bit of a lapse in screening or somebody was able to slip one of these items through, it could bring a plane down. So that's, that, that's the, really the rationale behind this, Scott, from what we understand. So will this ban make planes safer? Well, I, I guess it really would, would, would uh, I mean, uh, on its face, it may, just given the fact that we know there are terrorists in the world motivated to bring down airliners. Uh, ever since the 60s, Scott, terrorist groups have had a fixation on the aviation sector in terms of targeting, whether it be actual flights on the ground, in the air particularly, and or airports. So that is, I think, an assumption we can make. So I think anything that makes it safer on its face you know, may deter somebody or may make somebody have to work harder to try to circumvent security. So I think it probably is a net positive. But of course, you always must balance this against the amount of um, confusion that it sows, uh, the amount of inconvenience, uh, the cost that it puts through to end consumers and to the airlines through the sector. And that's a constant balancing act in this, in this way of looking at how much security is enough given the level of threat and how much inconvenience and delay is, is warranted with the traveling public. This is definitely going to cause a little bit more delay. People are going to not have heard about this. People are going to you know, try to slide something past. It will cause more delays in lineups at some of these Middle Eastern airports returning back to the U.S., and by the way, the UK has just announced very recently, maybe even the last few minutes, that they will also be banning 
flights, I believe, from six uh, Middle Eastern countries, Scott, yeah, it uh, seems in a similar vein. I have just heard that an announcement as well, that they seem to be uh, involved. So what does that say, the fact that these two countries are involved? Well, we might have had a bit of a different conversation, Scott, if this was the U.S. out on its own, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, we're talking about, is there legitimate reason for them? This has been in the works for a long time. The terrorist chat has been ongoing for quite a long time. So something's happened to make them decide to put these measures in now. Is it the legitimate, the threat trajectory has changed, and that's the reason why? Or as one official put it, is it the Muslim ban by a thousand cuts? Now, I'm not saying that it is, Scott, but I'm right. saying that's the position of folks that look at this, let's say your listeners, that some of them may feel that this is legit and, and very likely grounded in some good threat information. Some people may believe that this is Donald Trump kind of trying to roll out another part of his platform. The fact that the UK now has come out, hmm. interestingly that they've narrowed down, though, the, in, in the US, Scott, it's, it's um, I believe, eight um, different uh, countries that are involved and a number of airports within like multiple airports in some of these countries in the UK it's only six countries and they've missed out some of the airports so it seems to me as though the UK has done more of a possibly a finite analysis of all the information and it seems to me also Scott that it is likely the airports that are deemed not to have top-notch security mm. or are deemed to potentially have infiltration within either the airlines or within the airport workers. You'll remember, Scott, we've had a couple of instances, particularly the Egypt Air, where an Egypt Air employee was able to access a plane and plant a bomb, and it brought that plane down. Uh, that was a few years ago. So there is reason to believe that terrorist groups are trying to infiltrate ground crews, etc., to try to be able to introduce these devices. So Again, all the more reason why they would make this kind of a move if they believe the threat levels increase, Scott. Will, uh, since obviously we've now seen Britain jump on board as well as the U.S., uh, will this precaution spread? Where's Canada on this? I would expect that it probably would spread, Scott. I mean, obviously, when you look at, in the intelligence circles, the, um, the five eyes, um, which includes Canada uh, and, and the, the U.K. and U.S., as well as a couple other countries, you know, they typically um, look through the same intelligence. They typically have fairly similar threat information, particularly when it's global in nature. <clears throat> so I would not be surprised to see Canada look at this. The whole issue, Scott, is to what extent are there direct flights from some of these uh, airports of concern or some of these Middle Eastern or North African airports right into country? Now, the U.S. Uh, has... All of the U.S. flights are by Middle Eastern carriers. There's no U.S. carriers that have been named. However, in the U.K., this, this involves British Airways. Some of the domestic uh, U.K.-owned airlines do run direct flights from these airports. So the issue for Canada is to figure out which flights come directly into this country from those airports and is the level of threat such that Canada on its national security apparatus don't believe that there's sufficient security in play there uh, uh, and that there's a risk from these electronic devices and that they want to preclude that threat from, from manifesting, Scott. Uh, more difficult to bomb or try attempt to bomb an airliner than some sort of urban terrorist scenario? Why, again, uh, you know, after 9-11, uh, 
11, it seemed that uh, because the world moved to a different level of security, that this wasn't a, th- a threat anymore. You know, again, more difficult with an airline situation or more difficult in an urban situation? Well, if you look at a sheer numbers perspective, Scott, the number of disrupted plots and actual attacks, there are more attacks that have not targeted aviation, in my estimation, than there would be that have targeted aviation. And by aviation, I'm including the airport attacks as well as, um, you know, uh, planes and whether they be in the air or not. However, like I said, the target value, the target attractiveness of the aviation sector for terrorism has long been very, very high. So terrorists make decisions, Scott, based on a payoff or, a, you know, a kind of a, 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 a working through a, a process of saying, how easy is it going to be to do this? And how much, if you excuse the pun, bang am I going to get for my buck? So in terms of a aviation sector attack, it may be harder to infiltrate the security. But the actual payoff from that kind of an attack right. is, in their eyes, going to be much greater. So they're always doing that balancing act in a similar vein to how people make decisions in reasonable ways in areas, Scott, terrorists also make decisions along those lines. There's a mental calculus that goes in. So again, it's long been a prized uh, target. But again, what's happened globally, Scott, is as certain harder targets like uh, airplanes and aviation have become more difficult to get to for terrorists, you've seen a dispersal of their attention to softer targets where they can have sometimes homegrown people or other folks that aren't directly attached to a terrorist group can actually get out and, and make you know, significant um, plots and plans and attacks that, that get pretty much as big attention as an airline situation. Uh, obviously, now this is in place with the U.S. and Britain uh, with flights arriving from uh, these certain Middle Eastern countries. Do you think there's a, much like with water and everything else that has happened uh, post 9-11 that this will spread domestically? I don't really expect that at this stage, Scott, unless the level of homegrown terror threat is deemed by the Canadian authorities or the U.S. authorities to increase. Now, let's think about it for a quick second. The U.S. is in a state of flux right now, given its political situation and given the views of the administration and the purported Muslim ban or however you want to determine that, however reasonable you believe that is or necessary, it is causing a degree of, of disquiet and a degree of concern to certain groups within the country, certain minority groups in the country. And on the fringes of that kind of group, uh, there may be people with extreme views, and there may be a level of threat in the U.S. that's different to Canada, given that while there probably are people that don't like Mr. Trudeau, there doesn't tend to be the amount of rancor and really the rationale for there to be a lot of very extreme, very annoyed people that would want to rise up in some way or perpetrate an act of homegrown terrorism. There's always a risk, of course, Scott, in Canada, in the U.S., etc., all the time. But I'm saying that risk level right now, in my view, is not particularly elevated. But if it were to be elevated, then I think we would be looking domestically at the threat vectors that could come into play. One of those would be aviation, and they may well go <clears throat> to um, to address uh, you know these um, electronic devices in a similar way to liquids and gels and removing your shoes etc as they do um, the more that terrorist plans become known. Wow! All right, let's move on. I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on watching FBI Director James Comey uh, yesterday testify. I guess required to by the U.S. Department of Justice. He, he certainly he certainly looked like he'd rather be any other place but there. 
Well, yeah, he was kind of like a cross between a, a ventriloquist and kind of like a verbal verbal judo practitioner. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of hard to know, uh, you know, how he was going to try and try and thread the needle. Um, but you know, we did find out a little bit more. We obviously have now confirmed that there is an ongoing FBI investigation into contact between the Trump campaign and uh, you know Russians, whether it be government representatives or otherwise. We we do know that now. Um, we also know that there is no evidence that. Trump uh, in Trump Tower was wiretapped by uh, President Obama uh, or any of his uh, agencies. That's what we do know. <clears throat> what we don't know, um, you know, given that as this was occurring, the president was live tweeting a few things that seemed to be slightly um, at odds with what the law enforcement folks were saying in the hearing. Um, we, we just don't know what's going to come next. Right now, the FBI is going to continue their investigation. Scott, this is going to be an intricate tangled web of an investigation there's going to be some things that they know now that they probably could move on but they need to get more information and this may take several months so in the meantime there's going to be a lot of opinion there's going to be a lot of anonymous source revelations and i think no you know we're going to continue to see this narrative play out where depending upon your political views you're either going to think trump's doing a wonderful job and kind of you know cleaning house <clears throat> appropriately or you're going to think that he's the he's the the next armageddon uh, obviously, um, President Trump seems to be handling himself the same way he was during the campaign when it was us versus them. And they're the insiders, they're the swamp. And, and you know, I'm going to change all that. Uh, at what point does everybody realize he is now the guy? He's the leader of that swamp. And if he wants to clean it, he, he's got the ability and the tools to do that. How can he keep saying they're out to get me, they're out to get me when, when he's now the guy? How, like these people all work. For him. Well, I, I, think the, I think the reality, Scott, is that there's, there's a whiff of potential impeachment in the air. And that's not my, that's not my assessment, by the way. I'm, as you know, I'm not a political commentator, but, mm -hmm. you know, there are, there are many, many people, even in the mainstream left-leaning left um, kind of society, that believe that there's, this is not a smoking gun, you know, that, but, but you know, it's more than that, that there actually was uh, illegal activity going on or that there's a, there's a decent chance that Trump may be impeached or may do something to cause himself to, to fall out of favor in a very significant way. So I think that is really what's making some people kind of hang on to this thought that maybe, you know, he is, um, he's vulnerable. And maybe if we continue or if we keep looking and keep um, pushing this narrative, that we might have some success. But, but you're right. The reality is he's the commander in chief. He has his finger on the, on the various uh, levers of, of control. Um, the risk that, of course, he faces, Scott, is any type of an uprising within the Republican ranks, uh, as that, which there already is on a minor degree. The more that the, um, the other two seats of government start to coalesce together, which is a, obviously a very unlikely scenario given recent political uh, turmoils, but if there is a movement where the Senate, the Congress, uh, and the judiciary start to make adjudications and judgments that go against Trump, and Trump starts to feel as though he's cornered, this is the time when things may get really interesting. And I say that, you know, tongue-in-cheek, because we may then see some, some desperation moves and other things. But at the time being, Scott, he is the commander-in-chief. People have to – he can fire the FBI director if he wants to. Mm. Um, he, can, he can make a, a variety of steps. But ultimately, he is accountable. And I think he's finding out as days go by 
that he's accountable through various mechanisms, but ultimately he needs a level of public support. And it's when that public support reduces significantly, Scott, that I think that you'll see, you know, uh, you know again, very interesting times and, and potential challenges to his authority. Uh, one last issue. I wanted to touch base with you on what's happening in uh, Emerson, Manitoba, and uh, 28 more, uh, I, I guess, asylum seekers coming across uh, this past weekend. Who are these people? Are they refugees in need of our help? Are they asylum seekers? Are asylum shoppers, if some had called them? I think that common sense, Scott, would dictate that they're a mix. And obviously, again, the political folks are trying to either lean left or right and saying that they're all bad folks and they're all people that are evading, you know, U.S. authorities and they're, that they, they have no right to be here. They're, they're not in need. They have, they're, they're perfectly, you know, um, they'd be fine if they returned to whence they came. And then the other side of it where the left-leaning folks say, well, look, they are refugees. They're in need of help. And if we don't help them, nobody else will. And, and I think that the truth is probably leaning a little bit more, Scott, I, in my view, towards the fact that these are people that are running away from persecution in, in many respects, um, you know, some of them. Um, however, I believe that there are cases where, this is essentially a way for people that would rather not remain in their country of origin sometimes, in this case, say Mexico, that they want to, they know that the U.S. Um, barrier to entry has now increased so significantly that they're viewing this as an opportunity to try and sneak into Canada under the veil of Canada saying we welcome, you know, all cultures and, and, and um, et cetera. So I think that there's a bit of both going on here, Scott. And I do hope that Canada's approach to this is welcoming where we need to be uh, where we have refugees or people that are avoiding persecution, but that also we adhere to our immigration laws, and we have those laws in place for a reason, and people need to be able to adhere to uh, the laws of entry to Canada, for, for, for the fairness of all. That's obviously my next point. Uh, obvi- Canadi- Canadians, we welcome all. I mean, we're a nation of immigrants, that's for sure. But at what point do you say, hey, people are jumping the queue, there's a way to do this, there's a process, opposed to, as opposed to just walking across the field and entering the country and hoping we catch them all? Yeah, well, don't, don't, don't forget, Scott, that certainly there may be a few that have slipped in under the radar, undetected, period. But a lot of these people are making themselves known to the authorities yeah. because they, they be, or local people because they believe they're going to get a fairer shake in Canada. What, what's going to, you know, the, just because these people come over the border and then they're taken into custody, essentially, it doesn't mean they're going to stay here, Scott. That, yes, of course, we're going to put them up and take care of them while they're here, while the immigration process... Uh, goes through the through the through the various steps but some of these people may wind up for humanitarian reasons for a variety of reasons being allowed to have some kind of path to entry to Canada some of them may be educated in terms of what it would take in the future and sent back to their country with a, at least an idea of how they would um, you know, apply to get into Canada in the future and meet our entry requirements. So I don't think you're going to see a one, a one kind of approach here in terms of how this is dealt with. But I'm of the view that, of course, we need to be compassionate. And of course, we need to understand when people are true refugees and they are, they're, they're in, in, in danger in some way. But we also can't lower our standards of immigration laws because that wouldn't be fair to the people living in the country who are paying taxes, who do expect certain things, and who expect the laws to be adhered to, Scott. Uh, do you anticipate this problem increasing over the summer months? Um, I, think, I think it will, ultimately. I mean, I think that especially, to me, what's going to signal things here is that the, the initial determinations of some of the earliest cases. 
as more information gets reported through the media, if it's spinning away or it appears that it's easy to get into Canada and you really don't have much risk in coming here, I think we're going to see an increase. If there's some fairly harsh decisions, and when I say harsh, I just mean in terms of the the um, how it was perceived by potential entrants into the country that would be illegally crossing the border, if they view it that it's really this, they're, they're, like, they're going to get apprehended, they're going to get put through a process and probably put back to the, to the queue again and have to do it the normal way, that may act as a bit of a counterweight, Scott, to any increase. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant. David Hyde and Associates. Uh, U.S. government is ordering passengers on nonstop flights to the States from a few Middle Eastern countries to check all electronics devices. Of course, touching on that, uh, wiretapping and Manitoba as well. David, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've talked about this for uh, several weeks now, and this uh, being uh, people that are crossing uh, the border into Canada from the United States. Uh, I guess it's been happening in parts of British Columbia, Quebec, but most notably in a small town called Emerson, Alberta, where I guess another 23 uh, asylum seekers came over uh, over the course of the weekend. We've heard horrific stories about these people, you know, uh, walking in 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 the middle of the Manitoba winter, which is just brutal. Uh, And lots are concerned as what's going to happen when the warmer months open up and uh, allow people to travel more freely uh, between borders. Uh, It's assumed now that most of the people are coming here are then turning themselves in and and hoping that they can get a better uh, a better life in Canada than in the United States. Uh, From what we heard from David Hyde, some are, uh, I guess, legitimate refugees most are just asylum seekers looking for a better situation than what they have. Again, Canada's a welcoming country. We love to, like to think that, and, and then we, you know, we're a land of immigrants. We give everybody a chance and, and so on and so forth. But the line forms to the right. What happens when we start walking in through open borders? Uh, for the most part, it appears like we have this controlled and that the people that are coming in uh, want to be... Uh, obviously arrested by the police and then you know their hopes is that the way they are treated and their status once they get here will lead them obviously to a better life and you can't blame them for that um but what you know are, are we getting all of them are there places where you know there's some coming in that don't necessarily want you know because these are people that don't want to go through the border they could easily cross at the border and you know they would either a be sent back or if they've got the proper documentation would be allowed in so uh, obviously it's jumping the queue and when it's a couple of people trickling in and the prime minister waving his arms in the air and saying everybody's welcome here it's one thing but when it starts increasing and um, it starts flooding the services in these border towns what happens then who pays for it and how do we control this because at the end of the day you cannot have an open free-flowing border Uh, as much as we have uh, an unprotected border between the U.S. and Canada, uh, they obviously try very, very uh, diligently to to make sure that the border is patrolled and that people are not doing just that. Uh, but now an Ipsos poll says that nearly almost 50% of Canadians want any migrants or refugees who arrive in Canada illegally uh, at the U.S. border to be sent back. Uh, and of course, we're going to throw that out there. Uh, what do you think? 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Should those who enter illegally be deported? 
or should they uh, just fit into the line with uh, everyone else? And, and again, how, how do we decipher between people who are uh, real refugees and needed and those that are just looking for a better deal? Uh, to talk about this, Sean Simpson is with us, Vice President, Ipsos Public Affairs, and with us now. Hello, Sean. How are you today? Very well, thank you. All right, so give us uh, some of these results, Sean. What did your, uh, what did your uh, study find? Well, you're, you're entirely right that uh, nearly half of Canadians say that these uh, migrants who are coming from the United States into Canada illegally should be sent back to the United States. 36% believe that uh, the migrants should be uh, uh, accepted or at least allowed to remain in Canada to seek refugee status. Another 17% don't know. Now, the, 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 this is a, a bit of a complex issue. Canada being a country of, of uh, peace, order, uh, you know, and, and, and good governance, likes rules. And what's happening here is that the migrants that are coming across the border are obviously not following the rules. However, they're then eligible once picked up by the police to seek refugee status. The rules as they are now mean, state that nobody coming into Canada at a, at a port of entry can seek refugee status because the United States is a safe country. So if you're coming in from the United States, so it's not that the people um, coming in illegally, uh, you know, skip the line. There is no line for people coming in from the United States. Right. And it, it, the rules seem a little bit backwards in that if you come illegally, you get your case heard. If you come legally, you just get turned uh, sent sent back to the United States. So I think that is is informing some of the opinions that we're seeing in this poll here, where people are saying, no, no, if they're coming in illegally, they ought to be sent back. And I don't think it's necessarily a reflection of the fact that we're less tolerant of, of refugees, for example. So is this, it does, is this merely pointing out that we have a new situation here that requires a new set of rules? I, I, I think so. Um, this problem is an I mean, it's not uncommon, but it's not a regular occurrence for Canada. I mean, there, there have been times in the past where uh, we have uh, boats of, of migrants uh, coming ashore, uh, either in the East Coast or, or usually in, in Vancouver, and we've had to deal with these on a case-by-case basis, and, and usually those, those people are allowed to remain and seek refugee status. Uh, doesn't mean that they get refugee status, but they're allowed to, to, to seek it. Now we've got a very, very unique situation here where the rules say if you're coming from the United States, you cannot seek refugee status because the United States is a safe country. Mm-hmm. So the only way to do it is to do it illegally. Now, is is I think you know Canadians are saying, are we uh, should these people a be allowed to seek refugee status if they come illegally, or if they come legally, should they be allowed to seek refugee status? Because the rules prevent them from doing so right now. Um, how can't you do it, or how can you, uh, uh, how can you do it legally as if you cross and, and, and claim refugee status if it is a safe country? I mean, at the end of the day, how can they be refugees coming from the United States if the United States is considered a safe country for them? Right, and so and I mean, even with change in, in even with the change in in president, that's not going to change that, is it? Yeah, no, and, and it may be that the rule is sound, and that this is a a bit of an anomaly. Um, can you 
you know, can you flee the United States uh, from uh, because of, of 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 the president? Does does the existence of Donald Trump as president now make the United States of America unsafe for 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 these people? That's no different than all the people that were applying to live in Cape Breton a while ago. You know, I mean, is that, it, yeah, really is yeah, it any yeah. is it any different? I mean, either they're refugees or they're not. Either their life is in danger or it isn't. Now it could be that 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 the rule is. I mean, just looking ahead in the future, uh, the rule could be changed to allow people who, who, who um, uh, enter Canada legally to seek refugee status, but that doesn't mean that their claim would be accepted. So e- even these, these illegal migrants crossing the border who get a refugee claim in, they may look at the merits of that claim and say, well, you've come from the United States. That is a safe country. Your claim is, is denied. So s- assuming that, Sean, wouldn't most of these people be sent back? It could be that they're sent back anyways. But I think what Canadians are saying here is, by virtue of the fact that you've arrived illegally, yeah. you should be sent back, not on the necessarily the merits of your application. Right. So, uh, so at the end of the day, uh, border services as they come into Canada, uh, Canadian border uh, uh, personnel will, uh, of course, arrest them, take them into custody. They'll go through a hearing. Um, if it's determined there they are a refugee. Um, then the process would begin to allow them to stay. But if they're not, if they're a safe citizen in the safe country of the U.S., they would be sent back, would they not? Yep, they, they, they likely would be. Uh, and even if they, let me ask this, Sean, and even if they are a refugee and arrived into the United States, that still doesn't give them a right to come into Canada illegally. Well, because they're not, they're even in... In the United States, it's not like they're in, you know, in some sort of refugee camp in Syria. They've arrived into the United States, into a safe country. That's right. And, so, at what point? I guess at what point does a refugee? At what point does a refugee become an asylum seeker? I guess is the question. Mm-hmm. Well, I th- it, and the terminology is very difficult in this as well because in 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 the United States, they would refer to these people as as probably illegal immigrants. We don't really use that terminology here in Canada, and and I think the term you know illegal immigrant has a has a connotation. I think there's a difference I think between a, an illegal immigrant and a, a, you know a legitimate migrant seeking refugee status or or, or asylum, and and so Canada and the U.S. aren't really on the same page when it comes to how to deal with these people or even how to refer to them. But let me uh, let me throw this out, Sean. So, but these people that are um, migrating from the United States, wherever they're from, say South African countries, what have you, they're getting into the U.S. legally, though, are they not? Well, presumably they've so they're not illegal refugee status in the United States, right? So they're not illegal immigrants in the United States. Uh, well, it they may, might be new immigrants, but they're not illegal. It's, I mean, it's impossible to to, to know the details. But um, that's I guess my point is, is that illegal immigrants aren't. I guess my point is illegal immigrant refugees are not arriving on American shores and then them skipping through to Canada to avoid prosecution from Americans. That's not happening, is it? I think it's impossible to say because we don't know what the status is of these individuals that are, right. that are crossing. Now, that would probably be taken into consideration when their uh, when their asylum claim is 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 heard. But I, I think that's why we're in a bit of a limbo. And Canadians are saying until we've got this sorted out, if you arrive illegally, half of them say you're turned away uh, back back to the United States. 
Uh, do you anticipating? Do you anticipate this growing as the summer progresses and the warmer weather gets here? We've seen how these poor people have come across in the middle of a freezing winter. What do you think is going to happen when it warms up? Yeah, I, I think there's there's certainly the chance for this to continue. Um, at some point, uh, I think you know the, the federal government has been a little bit cagey in in uh, answering questions from the media about. What are they going to do about it? Are they going to review the legislation and the regulations? I think that's likely going to happen, particularly if, if we're, we're continuing to hear stories about how migrants are, are crossing the border. The government at some point is going to have to step in and do something. And in fact, uh, a majority, two in three Canadians, say that this issue should be a top priority for the government of Canada. Hmm, interesting. Uh, all right, we'll leave, it, you, uh, we'll leave it with that. Sean Simpson is with us, Vice President, Ipsos Public Affairs. Ipsos poll says uh, almost 50 percent of Canadians want any immigrants or refugees who arrive in Canada uh, illegally to be sent back. Uh, thank you very much, Sean. Phone lines are open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Asking the question, should those who enter illegally be deported? Uh, obviously, it's not a cut and dry question, but we'd love to hear your thoughts, or a, a cut and dry answer, but we'd certainly love to hear your thoughts. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Frank, what are your thoughts? Well, Scott. Uh, firstly, if they're if it's illegal, it's illegal. Mm-hmm. That's it. You can't you know you can't say yes. Don't let them in. They have to be deported. Uh, just draw a different parallel to you. Uh, somebody who is working here in the in Canada, who is a resident of the United States, right, and decides that they want their family to visit them. Okay, so when their family comes over, they have to come over to a uh, an official border crossing, as you would think. Uh, well, you obviously yes. And they have to show a passport as to where that they're going to be uh, in order for them to gain entry. Mm-hmm. Okay, but let's say they stay with their with their um, parents for a while. Then, at at one point in time, they're going to have to pursue possibly um, a, a, a job visa or yeah. or to, to go one step further, citizenship. Mm-hmm. Now, it takes. I believe it takes about. It take that you can't get. To, I know somebody right now who's actually moved here. From the states, and she, she actually uh, still works in in the United States, but she has to wait about three years before she gets herself confirmed to have a Canadian citizenship, so that she would be a participant in, let's say, OHIP, yep. or pay taxes in Canada. Mm-hmm. See, so when you when you compare that against the legitimacy of it, it certainly is not fair to say the least that somebody would be able to walk across the border yeah. and assume that they could stay here. Matter of fact. If you were to uh, be an American and you were to walk across a border crossing, somebody would grab you at the back of the shirt in a minute and pull you back over. So, so uh, do you think over that way, do you right? think the people crossing are refugees, or do you think they're just asylum seekers? Well, even if they're refugees, like, how would you ca- qualify a refugee in the United, from the United States? Okay, let's put it this way: let's say the refugee that's coming over. Well, that would presume that they're illegally in the United States and they've landed on the shores there, and rather well, than claiming. Uh, I guess, status there, they'll come here. I, again, most of the people that are coming up, I would believe, are already in the U.S. system. So right. they've already been cleared. So, you know, I, I don't think they're refugees. I think they're people that are just looking for a better place to go. And I and I certainly can't argue with that. But you know what? you got to get in line like everybody else who's trying well, to do the exact okay. same thing. We're using thing. the wrong word here. Anybody who's, who's vacating the United States for the sheer fact of trying to get to Canada... Uh, would they be able to do that to any other nation? I doubt so. Yeah, good point. Thanks, Frank. Much appreciated. Lisa's on the line. Lisa, what are your thoughts? Uh, should those who enter illegally be deported? I'm with the 17% that have 
that just don't know because the situation is just completely far too complicated to put mm. everybody into one group and say every single last one should be deported. Because, Good point. Um, to add on what the previous caller said, my wife is American. Um, when she crossed the border legally with her American passport um, to come live with me, uh, she filed visitor visas, which expire every six months. She is now on a work permit and applying for permanent residency. Mm -hmm. Permanent residency can take anywhere from 12 to 28 months to process. And after you are given permanent residency, it's five years before you can get citizenship. Now, if she had crossed illegally, absolutely no doubt, she would have been grabbed by the scruff of the net and tossed back over the border. But she's an American with legal status in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. She really has nothing to fear as an American citizen. Now, somebody that's from, say, Sudan mm -hmm. or Somalia, for example, would be a good one because it appeared on um, the ban list for um, uh, President Trump's ban list. Those people could honestly have something to fear, even though maybe this threat isn't, I don't want to say real, but... Well, at the uh, end of the day, it's not real because they're not being deported from the United States. That's just simply no, not No, they're happening. not. They're not. Absolutely. You're correct. And if they have legitimate status in the United States, of course we should send them back to the United States. But if they don't have legitimate status in the United States, then we have an entirely different issue that we yeah. really have to look and at. I, and I think most Canadians would agree with exactly what you're saying. But the point is, and that I brought up with the last guest and even the Ipsos uh, person, was that, you know... Uh, are there that many illegal immigrants that have got to the United States shores illegally and then rather than trying the process there, they're going to come to Canada? And again, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if it's a refugee or an asylum seeker. And, I, and I, you know, and I'm all and I'm agreeing with what you say that, you know, if it's somebody in dire straits and it's a refugee, that's one thing. But uh, people who are just jumping the queue. Um, and again, I can see it, but I, I'm not sure that that's fair at all. I agree, and jumping the queue is a big problem with me because my wife is in immigration right now, and that actually really bothers me when people do it. Yeah, I hear you. Thanks, Lisa, for the call. Much appreciated. Good luck. Stephen's on the line. Stephen, real quick, what are your thoughts? Should they be deported? Absolutely. Is it that cut and dry? Does each one need to be investigated uh, individually? No, it's that cut and dry. Now, my understanding, and, and, and I'm hearing this through uh, the news, is that people are actually flying into the states and immediately proceeding to come to our border. That's just wrong. There's rules. we got to follow them. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.